Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 129, Big Bad Looking Over Her Shoulder. This week we're discussing season 5, episode 13 of Buffy, Blood Ties, and series 9, episode 1 of Doctor Who, The Magician's Apprentice. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay, so Buffy Blood Ties. Um, so I want to start with Dawn. And actually, I think we're going to spend probably the majority of our time on Dawn because Shocking. this whole episode sort of revolves around her. And yep. yeah, kind of the secrets of what she is sort of coming to light a little bit more. Yeah, and we haven't really had a um, episode about Dawn since you know pretty early in the season when we like first like see her like we get the overdub of her writing in her diary and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean we've gotten stuff about her certainly, but yeah, not no nothing where it's like really focused on her. Yeah, like really from her kind of point of view. Um, yeah. Right, because up until now, it's more been about her being ignorant about all that. Like, everybody else is finding, when I say everybody, Buffy and Giles and Joyce have been finding out about her. Mm -hmm. And we've had, like, Glory looking for her, sort of, and talking about the key and everything. But, like, Dawn's not aware of any of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it was at the end of the last one, two weeks ago, we talked about where she sort of starts to overhear them, you know, hear the adults whispering about her. Um, right. And, uh, and here, obviously, that is continuing. Right. Um, and we get like, right. And that's when Dawn like walks in on Buffy and Glory talking. And yep. she's like, I'm going to find out. I'm going to figure out what you're talking about. Well, you know, she's yes. right. <laughs> she, she, <is>. she did. <laughs> Sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and it's kind of the, on the kind of, I wouldn't say a stereotype, but it's the thing of the like, you know, kind of slightly paranoid teenage thing of, oh, you're talking about me behind my back, except she's right. You know, like, it's the kind of thing that probably every teenager at some point accuses someone of doing yeah. that, but Dawn um, is actually correct. And, you know, she's... It's, you know, she probably thinks it's something stupid, but this is actually a much bigger deal. You know, it's actually, there's a lot of serious reasons why they're talking yeah. behind her back and everything. Sure. And, um, and I, you know, not, um, I know we weren't necessarily going to get into this part of it this early, but even things like, you know, sort of the fantasies that kids and teenagers may have about like, maybe I'm really adopted. Maybe this isn't my real family. Like, you know, maybe I'm something better. Like my real parents are, right. you know, whatever, I don't know, like movie stars or something or whatever right. kids fantasize right. about. Um, right. Or, or my annoying big sister can't tell me what to do because she's not really my sister, right. you know, right. but then obviously that's, you know, maybe, uh, a kind of happy fantasy on one side and then is obviously not so happy, you know, um, right. it becomes, um, 
you know, there's a lot of negatives which go along with that too. Like it's fun to think about being on your own and being in charge of yourself, but you know, she is 14 and to think that she might not really belong here is a terrifying sort of idea. Um, mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Um, one, one other thing that actually I want to mention, I didn't, I didn't really think of this before um, we started talking, but I did want to point out too, that this is the first, uh, this is the introduction of Stephen S. DeKnight as mm -hmm. a writer into the Buffy world. Um, and now uh, I, I actually have to do some quick, uh, <laughs> quick checking here because I think, yes, okay, I couldn't remember because he, he also is a writer on Angel, but not till later seasons. So this is actually okay. his introduction here. And, and um, just wanted to point out that, so he, uh, uh, he's also worked on um, Smallville. Uh, he worked mm -hmm. on, uh, he helped work with Whedon again in Dollhouse. Um, and most recently he uh, took over as showrunner for Daredevil, the Netflix oh, okay. uh, series um, from Drew Goddard. Uh, you know, so there's um, uh, some good, good stuff that he's worked on there. Um, and, and some other things. I don't, I don't know his whole, mm -hmm. uh, uh, whole thing there, but I know, um, uh, you know what? So this is his introduction into the Buffy verse. He he also worked on some uh, comics, uh, Buffy specifically comics, as well as some other comic stuff. So mm -hmm. um, done done some good stuff uh, there. But just thought I'd mention that because we do try to mention when we have a new writer in the mix. Um, yeah. And and another so which which is interesting. So this is another um, like we talked about with real me how uh david fury kind of uh took dawn and sort of made made his own like uh you know kind of did his own thing with with her yeah. uh as far as the characterization like we you know we had all the hints sort of leading up to dawn's appearance and then we had um sort of like this idea of who she was and how old she was and that kind of thing but we didn't who she was insofar as like that she's Buffy's sister, but we didn't, yeah. you know, like Joss hadn't like worked out like things like her having a crush on Xander or whatever. Right. And, and so you just get like some more of that sort of doubling down here with, with mm -hmm. a new writer. And I think he does very well actually, which is also mm -hmm. why I wanted to point it out, you know, cause yeah. I, I like yeah. him and I like his stories. Um, and we'll get to another one of his stories later in the season that is of particular interest to me. Uh, mm. so, um, yeah, anyway, uh, Interesting. just wanted to sort of point that out, even though that was not necessarily on our list of things to talk about. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, no, there's a lot of good stuff for Dawn in this episode. Um, so I kind of wanted to go through the episode following her because it kind of does put her, you know, as the, the point of view and the focus and everything. Um, so, um, but kind of talk about the other characters alongside it. So, you know, we start, um, it's, it's a Buffy birthday episode, um, which, you know, mm -hmm. isn't necessarily as central as some of the other Buffy birthday episodes, but, sure. um, still this idea of, you know, remembering that it is her birthday and you kind of see her, uh, reluctant to celebrate just, you know, in this very work focused, 
thing that she has going of wanting to just train and keep doing research on the key, keep looking for glory, all this stuff. And um, everyone having to sort of convince her that, no, we need to, you know, relax and party and, um, sure. you know, appreciate each other a little bit. Um, and I feel like for an episode that kind of ends up focusing on family, that's sort of, you know, an important thing. Like there's there's the, the bit later where, um, you know, Buffy and Joyce are sort of talking about how to help Dawn and Buffy's sort of wanting to be the slayer because that's the only thing that can really, you know, protect anybody at this point. And Joyce kind of reminding her, well, you know, she doesn't really need the slayer at this point. She needs her sister. So this reminder of, you know, you can't just be the slayer all the time that again, like we always say, the thing that distinguishes Buffy is her friends and family. So to just, you know, focus on glory all the time, isn't necessarily what's going to defeat glory, you know, like what's actually going to win in the end, I think are these more personal family connections and everything. Um, and that's obviously what sort of ends up, really getting through to dawn in the end mm -hmm. um but um so at the party you know again she is kind of overhearing stuff and you know pretending she's not like she's just getting plates and you know she's sure. you know um but kind of comes out and confronts everyone when they all you know stop talking um and that is a big step too that buffy um tells everybody, you know, about the key and that, you know, because they're all like about to start looking for it. And so Buffy's sort of forced right. into telling them. There's, there's almost like a Scooby mutiny on, on her right, hands. Right. Like they're like, no, we, we're not going to do what you say. We need to look for the key. And it's right. Like, and it's sort of this like, well, crap, I guess I have to, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, not let them waste their time or get into trouble and everything. Right. Um, you know, and Sanders point about, you know, I didn't want to put, put you in that kind of danger as opposed to the other kind we're always in. Like it doesn't really, you know, keep right. them out of danger. And in fact, ignorance can get you into just as much danger as anything sure. else. Sure. Um, but you know, which you, again, you can make the same argument uh, with Dawn, you know, at what point should they have told her? And it's like, well, whatever point, you know, it gets to be a little too late in right. this episode that she, as soon as the other Scoobies know, the game is over because they can't possibly keep this, you know, a secret. When you've got Willow and Tara kind of trying to be all sensitive and you've got Anya and Xander being really awkward, like there's no way, as soon as they knew, it was just a matter of time yeah. before Dawn found out. Yeah. Um, so, and let's talk about that for a minute because okay. on, on the one hand, like, like I get it, like you're mind is blown a little bit there's you know this person who was kind of marginalized has now become central. you know sort yeah. of central to yeah you're you're you've got a protector and you know you can't let people know at the same time like you're trying not to let her know what's going on um but like and and maybe like you can chalk up a lot of the ways they act to just that sort of thing like you mm -hmm. know oh Sometimes people aren't good at keeping secrets, except that 
all of these people have kept secrets pretty successfully in the past. So like, mm -hmm. this is, you know, like Willow and Tara outside the magic shop. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I don't know if Buffy would like, you know, her little sister mixing with dark magic. You were what, two words away from finishing the spell? You say, oh, actually, you know, we're almost just done. Thanks for the offer. Like you could have yeah. just easily turned, you know, her offer to help and say, oh, maybe next time, but we're we're actually done here. Hey, look, see, let me throw this down and, you know, the spell's done. Like, yeah, like, you know, the the awkward ways that they act, like, again, maybe you can chalk that up to they're just nervous and not really comprehending everything right and whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's probably how we're supposed to, but there's also just some like, I don't know, a little silly, you know, a lot of it seems to me just like stupid stuff. And, mm -hmm. and the thing is like, you know, we don't actually hear what like Xander and Anya are talking about in, you know, the summer's living room there. I could totally believe that they were just talking about sex and not, right, you know, right, dog. right. But like, they've already been acting so weird. Um, and also, well, that's the thing is like, part of me was thinking like, actually, that's believable, but like, right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, but also like, I mean, there's, there's a certain aspect of like, this isn't, well, on the one hand, this is recent because Dawn's recent, but there's also the sense of like, you know, in her memories of what the Scooby gang does, that's mm -hmm. it, right? Like they keep her out of the loop and they go off and fight their demons and, right. you know, do their things. And so it's not like, it's not like this is also just a recent thing. It's like a more intense version of something that's been happening uh, subjectively in Dawn's view and, and in the other's view too, for a long time. So yeah, I think the main thing that's different is the thing you said about it being about Dawn. Like, she's used to being marginalized and kept out of the group, but she's not used to being the thing which makes the room go quiet. You know, like, sure. that's it rather than, like, like, to me, that's what's different is not just the, oh, Dawn, get out of here, you can't hear this or change the subject, but this sense of you know, you're the center of it. Like in that way, being the center of attention was weirder than, you know, um, than being kind of on the margin of it. Mm. Um, although I don't, I, I kind of do agree that like the comedic element of it is maybe overplayed a little bit, you know, um, yeah. it, it, that seems kind of more kind of sitcom-y farce, like where like, you know, you're kind of playing with the, like, irony of, you know, people trying to keep secrets unsuccessfully from each other and everything. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I the, it, it, again, it, the bits that work are the bits that are more plausible. Like the fact that you could believe that Xander and Anya are just talking about sex and they're not even making that up. Right. Like that that's just true. Or Anya who's always overcompensating in that way. So like when she says like, oh, you make a very pretty little girl, like that's the kind of stuff that Anya says when she's trying to sort of emphasize her like humanity. So like that isn't quite as weird as some of the others. Like, yeah. cause you're sort of used to that sort of thing from her, I think. Right. Um, right. Um, 
So yeah, I, you know, whatever. Maybe maybe I'm dwelling on it a little too much, and you know, wouldn't be the first time. But uh, I just I felt some of the ways that that they that this different Scoobies act were a little like it just didn't seem to jive with like other secrets that like mm-hmm. have been kept by various members in the past. Um, mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Uh, whatever we can move on um so, so don don goes to her room so she won't be exposed to like words words yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep um yeah because it's like she can't hear the thing that they don't want her to hear and they also she also can't hear the sex stuff that xander and anya are talking about so it's like Nobody talk, Dawn, just get out of here because it's all inappropriate. Um, So, yeah, she goes to her room and climbs out the window. Um, I love how in TV shows they all have a perfectly placed, like, fence to climb down. Like, worker, yeah. Like, I love it. (laughs) They all have that. Um, It's always funny. Um, But uh, she goes out and meets Spike, of course, who is doing his sort of lurking thing with a cigarette and like a box of chocolates for Buffy's birthday, apparently. So, you know, this is him, you know, maybe still thinking he's been like doing his practicing. Maybe he's about to sort of pull the trigger on this relationship. How much did he work up, you know, the courage to like, yeah, do that. Yeah. Standing in front of the mannequin or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, how long has he been out there? Would he have said anything? You know, all this stuff that Dawn doesn't necessarily, she kind of picks up on some of it, but not to the extent that like, like she sort of intuits the kind of like, oh, you're being the creepy lurker with the chocolates, but she doesn't necessarily get the full extent of like how big a, how big a thing this is for, for Spike of all people. Like he's just like any other, you know, creepy guy, like, you know, She's not necessarily thinking of him as like this arch nemesis and everything. Um, But I kind of like the little dynamic, you know, between the two of them with her kind of, you know, trying to sort of be all like, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm tougher than you and all these things. And like him kind of, um, yeah, one thing I did like about, I know we've talked about some of the criticisms of Dawn in this ep- in this season and everything, but I feel like in this episode, it does give her several moments of being pretty clever. Um, and one of them is this, you know, where he kind of says, you know, oh, there's all manner of, you know, beasties between here and the shop. And she's like, well, I'm not scared of them. But you know, she kind of is. But rather than admit that, she kind of, you know, entices him with coming to steal stuff. So it sort of makes it look like she's not really looking for protection, but also kind of protecting herself, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, I feel like she knows that she's safer if he comes along. Um, And on the other hand, you can flip that around and say, well, Spike's aware of this too, because is he really just coming because he wants to steal stuff or is he becoming because like he says to Buffy later, I knew she would be safer if I went along. Mm. Um, And he's kind of maybe looking out for her on, you know, for Buffy's sake and everything. So I kind of like how neither of them 
both of them are kind of thinking the same thing, but neither of them really admits that, you know, there's, there's this kind of pretense of, oh, we really just want to steal stuff. But really it's sort of like Spike's kind of like big brotherly a little bit in this scenario and kind of like, you know, well, you're going to run away. I guess I'll tag along with you, but he's really doing it so that, you know, well, and so you also get the sense, though, a little bit like maybe he's fishing or at least I get the sense. I shouldn't say mm -hmm. you do, but I get the sense that he's sort of fishing for an invite, too. When she says, like, oh, you know, I'm going to steal some stuff and I'm, you know, worse than you. Yeah. And he's like, oh, well, there's there's a lot of beasties out there. Like, hint, hint, like maybe you should bring yeah. me along, <laughs> you know, right. like like that he's. Like, I, I, I don't I don't want to take away from anything you said about Dawn. I think you're absolutely right, like, that she is clever in that sort of moment and, like, you know, sort of has her own agenda that she's with. But I, I feel like they're both sort of coming at it from their own sort of angle. Like, yeah. for Spike, this is like, ooh, like, okay, I don't get to be as bad as I want to be, but, like, if I can help, you know corrupt not a lot but a little you know help corrupt a you know teenage girl who happens to be the you know slayer's younger sister that's like as evil as i can get now so like <laughs> so right. like why not go ahead and do that so someone she's like you want to come steal some stuff he's like yeah sure like yeah it, it's an immediate like response he's it's not like oh let me think about this let me well, you know, I was going to give these chocolates to Buffy. So, right. you know, which one do I want to do more? Like, he doesn't stare away the pros and cons. He's just like, right. yeah, steal stuff, sure. Well, and it's a, it's a win-win because he gets to do some petty crime and, and sort of corrupt her a little bit. Right. But also, he has the, the backup safety net of if Buffy confronts me about it, I can say I was protecting her and that makes me look good in front of Buffy. Yeah, yeah. And like... Like we named our episode, like she's safer if I went along, you know, with Big Bad looking over her shoulder. So he kind of gets to have his cake and eat it too, you know, yeah. like corrupting her without endangering her, you know, like, sure. uh, which, which is, like... I mean, you could argue whether it's still endangerment, but like, I think for Spike, this is like a win-win situation. And like, based on what I've, now I don't read a lot of YA fiction centered, you know, towards teenage girls. Sure. I won't say I've never read <laughs> anything in that genre, but I don't yeah. read a lot of it. Okay. But I have read, you know, uh, commentary on it. And, okay. And a lot of, I've seen in certain, you know, multiple places that, you know, the appeal of that sort of literature is exactly that, that there's this, it, it's the sort of feeling, you know, uh, endangered without actually being endangered. You know, that, mm -hmm. that sense of like, you're doing, you know, through the literature, obviously, like just reading yeah. a book isn't dangerous necessarily. Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. Right. But like, you know, <laughs> the reading of the book isn't, but like, but the feeling that you get of being with the character who's, you know, maybe in a dangerous situation, but is never in any real danger kind of thing. Like that, right. that's the appeal um, particularly it seems for young women of that mm -hmm. age, you know, maybe Dawn's age or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, that sort of very thing that you described seems to be 
a common thing, uh, you yeah. know, a common sort of feeling or, or motif in sort of that YA literature. And I feel like in that sense, like if we, you know, obviously Buffy um, hits a number of different genres, like, you know, just like Doctor Who does and whatever, but, you know, mm-hmm. um, is sort of consistently fantasy and stuff, but like we've gone away, like we've seen how we've gone away from like the early, uh, you know, seasons of Buffy where, mm-hmm. you know, she's a sophomore yeah, uh, in high school. And we're talking about like sort of the teenage problems and then going into, you know, the problems of graduation and becoming an adult and going to college. And it's like, this is almost like a throwback now mm-hmm. to like having to revisit, like what were some of those? And, and Don's a little bit younger. So Don's uh, mm-hmm. 14, you know, and not, not quite, uh, you know, the sophomore high school that Buffy was there, but like, you know, now we're going back and sort of re-exploring those from sort of that different perspective and, and looking at that sort of, so uh, again, I'll, I guess just to sort of point out that there's like this, why, you know, this sort of YA trope thing. And now the question is like, is that, did YA fiction become what it is today because of influences like Buffy, you know, 20 years right. ago or whatever, right. uh, or 15 years ago. And, and, you know, probably other things, you know, around that. Right. Well, I, sorry, you can finish. No, no, but, or, or, you know, was that, is, is that like, does that trope go further back or whatever? Like, is there other stuff? I mean, I, I would probably tend to argue that a lot of the, you know, Twilight and, uh, you know, vampire diaries and whatever whatever other like those sorts of things are tropes that grew out of the buffy kind of thing and maybe didn't quite do Mm -hmm. as well with it um Mm -hmm. if i'm providing my own personal opinion but Mm -hmm. uh you know like i think those are those are a lot of those things are sort of tied into this idea of like you know, like you said, like Dawn is going out and has the big bad look. So you have you have the bad guy, you have the, you know, man in a leather suit who's, you know, corrupting young women, but only a little bit, <laughs> you know, right, only like right. just kind of slightly. Also, and he's, he's really, protecting her. <laughs> if if the chips came down, he would protect her, you know, like, right. yeah. So, well, so a couple if the chip there. stays in, you mean? Well, there you go. <laughs> um, well, and it raises the question of to what extent spike's loyalty or protection is there you know um and um so a couple things you Um, it it does throw a uh you know it feels different when it's dawn and spike versus buffy and angel but like you said that's kind of where buffy and angel started because you had like you know, 15, 16 year old Buffy, 15 when it started. Right. Yeah. And, and Angel, who was the, the kind of broody vampire in leather, um, who at the time we didn't know much about and didn't necessarily have all that much reason to trust him. He was a sort of, he wasn't really heroic yet. When we first mm-hmm. met him, he was sort of the shaky, maybe he's on our side, but maybe not kind of ally, just like Spike is. So it's kind of like it it throws some different light on that relationship and kind of makes you go like, Ooh, you know, how much do we sort of, you know, how much are we willing to give these characters trust 
because they're likable and not necessarily yeah. because they've earned it. And, um, and I also want to be careful because I don't, I don't think we're meant to read anything romantic between Don and Spike. No, I don't this, really get that idea either. either. Um, yeah. So like, I, I also like, I know that's also a big part of like the, the, the YA stuff sure. that happens sure. like today. Um, and, and certainly I agree. Like that was a big, aspect of Buffy and Angel story. So I just yeah. I do want to be clear that like there were I don't I personally don't think we're meant to read anything. Yeah. There, yeah, I don't uh, get any that aspect, but but there's still yeah. the the idea of yeah, the corruption, you know, even if it's only slight and mm -hmm. you know, while simultaneously like looking out and, you know, protecting and all of that. Right. Well, and that's Buffy's thing that Spike kind of his thesis of Buffy is that that's what she's drawn to is those, you know, the guys who are, will protect her, but are also sort of dangerous too. So like, sure. um, you know, if that's true, then maybe Buffy would be kind of the twilight reader who like, you know, is drawn to the characters that are maybe not the healthiest for her, but there's still some sort of attraction. There's mm. something exciting about the fact that they're not necessarily you know the safest or you know or the healthiest especially so. if you start thinking about the way angel's acting right now and in, in the well, other series <laughs> i mean and i think that's even though those two aren't crossing over a lot i think i kind of like to keep thinking about both because i think it it reminds you to think about all the history with Angel of not just what's going on in his show, but all the stuff that we've learned in like when he was in Buffy. So I feel like it's useful to keep kind of yeah keep them each of them in, in the back of your mind when you're watching the other one. Um, but I wanted to say something really quick because your point about the, the kind of safe, you know, controlled environment of like the YA story is something I've definitely heard people say is, you know, a use or maybe even the primary use of, you know, for adults, maybe things like horror and gothic fiction and, and sort of scary literature, but for kids, things like fairy tales and things like that, like that it teaches you how to confront fear in a controlled environment. So mm. I, as a kid, it's not healthy for me to experience a lot of, you know, fear and trauma in the primary world, but I can learn about fear in the controlled environment of a story, you know, and that that can kind of help me learn how to cope with it and, and understand it. And that maybe the real world is more comprehensible because I've, you know, faced, you know, fear sort of in the stories that I read and watch and everything. So I would definitely argue that if YA got that idea from Buffy, then Buffy got that from the longer tradition of, you know, literature and like scary stories, whether that's fairy tales or Gothic horror or, you know, ghost stories or whatever. Um, and that, you know, that makes sense to me that, there's like a psychological use to that. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. and, and, and you won't hear me disagree. Cause as you know, that was one of the main themes of the <laughs> cabin in the woods paper <laughs> that I wrote, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know? So uh, yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And yeah, like, I mean, I suspect 
you know, looking at any trope, you can go back and find earlier instances. Find of some it, sort of know. prehistoric. Um, yeah, like I think Maurice Sendak writes about that with like where the wild things are and like, you know, yeah. um yeah. you know, um so I think that kind of makes sense. Um sure. sure. So all right, so Dawn is corrupted, breaks into the magic shop. Well, yeah. has has Spike break her into the magic shop. Right. Uh, well, she then, kind of taunts him. Right. With his lock, lock picking skills. Right. Um, and she finds the journal. Uh, I also love the, the throwback to, you know, a couple episodes ago of the troll hammer and Spike trying to pick yeah. it up. Um, just yeah, sort of a funny reminder that like, oh yeah, that's still there, right? Yeah. <laughs> like there's this troll hammer um but yeah uh so don finds the journal um yeah well so we want to spend time on what she learns like the mythology so maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later um and kind of exactly what it is but she basically finds out that she's the key and everything yeah Um, and and like i mean by the time you read the last you know spike's reading the last sentence like it's obviously very, very clear. She already you know? knows, like, you know, like she knows as soon as she starts yeah. reading it, it's like this dawning, like, you know, awful realization and everything. Yeah. Dawning um, and dawn. yeah. You know, and, and Spike's kind of, huh, like, like that came out of the blue to him because he wasn't really thinking about it. Whereas right. like, you know, with Dawn, this is making sense of a lot of things like all of a sudden everything that made no sense is making sense you know um all falls into place yeah so i want to go back to when she goes back home and go back to what you were saying about some of the kind of metaphors of what it's dealing with because you mentioned like fears like adoption or that you know you don't um you know all the big talk of oh, you're not my parents, the, the, the fear that that might be confirmed and that maybe your family isn't really yours. Maybe you're sort of on your own and cut off and everything. Um, but also um, that kind of scary moment when she comes in with the knife and, you know, yeah. is sort of testing her humanity and everything. And, and you know, so the phrase, um, I mean, there's just the image of it, but but Buffy uses the phrase, you know, my sister's cutting herself. And like, you know, that phrase to me seems quite deliberate that like, you know, that's a thing which unfortunately some, I'm sure not just teenagers, but certainly I associate that with teenagers of like, of, you know, a certain reaction to whatever anxiety or depression or, you know, and and I don't couldn't pretend to understand it, but I think a lot of times it is that kind of my understanding is that it's something to do with wanting to kind of test your own humanity and everything. And maybe if you maybe you cut to find out if you are alive, you know, much like Dawn does, you know, she's not sure if she's real. So she's going to find out if there's really blood there or something. Um so the fact that it kind of like, again, I feel like this is one of those kind of fantasy metaphors for, you know, uh, real world teenage uh, 
problems. Um, and it makes for like a pretty effective, you know, the fact that she doesn't just go home and have the like tantrum or confront them that like, she's so disturbed by this that she's gonna, you know, go straight to the knife um, mm. is like a pretty effectively scary thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things about it, so not not that like, there's a justified reason to cut yourself, but like, there's sort of a, a bit of an inversion here too, because a lot of, you know, what you hear about people, or, you know, or at least what I heard about people, you know, who cut themselves was like, oh, you know, it's a cry for attention. They want someone to help them, you know, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, whether that's true or not. But this is not that right with Dawn. This is, you know, she's actually sort of saying, like, is, is this blood? And there's there's the sense of like, Right. It's you know, almost like, like a science experiment. Yeah. It's like, it's like, she's kind of detached there, in that moment. There's a certain, um, yeah, there, right. There is a certain detachment and, and also a certain, uh, like sensibility to it, you know, as much as we, you know, again, I don't want to say that like cutting yourself right. is sensible ever, but in this concept, in this context, you can actually see the logic that, yeah. that she's sort of going through of this this seems like a good way to sort of verify that I am human you know do I not bleed um you know right. kind of thing. as Shakespeare says yeah 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 uh so you know I and and I don't think that negates the metaphor because I think you're right you know the idea yeah. of someone cutting themselves is is scary for any reason and there's there's definitely a, a, you know, a sense in that you want to, uh, you know, like, like Buffy says, like, I'm concerned because my sister's cutting herself. It has nothing to do with you being a key or, or whatever. This is like, I still care about you. I still feel, uh, you know, the way I feel because you're my sister, It, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, um, the thing and and that's also what leads into the sort of the adoption stuff too because that you know in that conversation um, in Dawn's room between Dawn, Buffy and Joyce um, sort of after that you know they oh, so they send everyone home you know uh, blood has once again been spilt during Buffy's birthday party and uh, yeah. you know in, in, a, yeah. in a different way uh, this time but but not necessarily any less important yeah. or you know scary way um you know so they're you know they're in dawn's room and having this discussion and there's a very like i always you know get a sense of like this is like you know the kid the adopted kid who suddenly finds out they're adopted like this mm -hmm. is this is the conversation i imagine mm -hmm. you know someone having like that and and i you know i i didn't go through that and um I I didn't know many people who were adopted, you know, when mm -hmm. I was young, but I've known, I, I have friends who are now, you know, in their thirties or whatever and have adopted and that sort of thing. And I don't, I don't know how they handle it always. Like, it's not something that I've gone into deep conversation, but again, like yeah. this conversation with Don is sort of what I imagine sort of an adoption conversation 
mm -hmm. being like. Um, I don't, I assume that that's intentional. I don't know. I, you know, yeah. maybe it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, I think there's, um, you know, that again, that idea of, you know, you're not my family and, and even not just that conversation, but then again, you know, the next morning when Joyce tries to get her to go to school and at first she doesn't want to, and then she's like, no, wait, school's better than this, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there is this sense of like sort of the, uh, mercurial teenage angst mm -hmm. uh you know and hormones going on there which uh spike sort of implies but there's also you know that sense of like i can do anything i want like there's there's almost like a freedom not right in a, you're not the not, boss of me not yeah. in a good way necessarily yeah. but there is a sort of sense a sense on don's part of freedom in that like i don't have to listen to you because you're right. not my real family. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, I don't have a family because I'm not a person. I'm a big blob of energy and there's no precedent for what I am, um, right. you know, here. So, right. yeah, I don't know. I don't know where to take all that, but I do feel like that there's a, a pretty strong correlation and, and metaphor going on there with, the, with that mm -hmm. adoption theme. Right. Well, and, and like you said, Spike draws attention to the metaphor of it, of like, she's both a blob of energy and a 14 year old girl. So you, they're sort of, you can't tell right. where one stops and the other starts in terms of why she's acting like she is like, it's almost like 14 year olds are a, a different species in a way like, you know, you can't uh, necessarily always apply logic to why they do what they do mm. um but um so she goes then to the hospital um and meanwhile they're looking for her everywhere except at the hospital of course um but she goes and you know, all the, she's put together that it's all the kind of crazy guys coming up and telling her, you know, I know what you are. So, mm -hmm. um, finds their room and, uh, the knight who then tries to kill her. And, you know, so now not only is she like not a human being and a blob of energy, but like there are people who are actually trying to kill her for this. So like, right. you know, okay. So that's even now it's like dangerous too. Um, and then Ben finds her. Um, now I do want to talk about Ben and Glory at some point. So maybe some of it will save, but um, you know, you kind of get more of him being like the nice guy that he's been to Buffy and everyone of, you know, he takes care of her and gives her hot chocolate and, sure. um, you know, we get uh, his kind of commiserating about how or commiserating about how annoying sisters are, which is interesting, you know, that you just wish they didn't exist sometimes. Um, <laughs> and um, and then he uh, gets pretty scared when he realizes what Dawn really is, you know. Yeah, um, he knows immediately, doesn't he? He knows immediately. And and you know, his reaction is interesting. Like 
he doesn't, you know, turn her over, obviously. Um, and he doesn't really kind of protect her. It doesn't really seem like he can protect her. Although yeah. I want to talk about that too, but it, it, his reaction is more for someone who has had a, kind of a lot of big talk about, Oh, glory can't lay a finger on me. And Oh, I'm going to beat up her demon to send her a message. His reaction when she's coming is like, just, well, crap, get out of here, run. She's coming. I can't do anything about it. It's just, he completely has, doesn't seem to have any ability to stop her. Yeah. And then she morphs into him. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then the weirdest thing to me, which I assume we're going to get more on this later, is that it doesn't seem like Dawn is able to remember this after yeah. the fact, which is weird. Like, you know, she has the line about, <laughs> well, he left before she came. Like, you'd think you'd remember the fact that, right. you know, Glory... So, and, and she knows immediately, like she draws the connection right away. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. She knows he was here and he helped me, but like there seems to be some confusion as to what exactly happened with him. Um, right. But I mean, like, like immediately when it happens, um, she says, you're, you're Ben. To glory right. when she appears. So, like, she gets it. Like, it's not like right. she turned around and then suddenly glory was right. there, you know, where right. Ben in was the moment, a moment ago. In the moment, she gets it. Right, in um, the moment. And, it's, and then it's later that she seems to have yeah. lost the clarity of that. Um, uh, and well, and, and we get that line from glory. Uh, it's a teensy bit more complicated than that. And family always is, isn't it? Right, um, right. So I think I, I think I guessed at one point that they might be brother and sister. So it seems like that's mm -hmm. sort of what they are. Although, you know, how literally do we take the line, you're Ben, you know, and the fact that she kind of literally takes him over. Are they united in some way? I mean, yeah. I assume we're going to get some more so, about them. But Okay, um, so what else do we have to say about Don? Because I, I feel like... Okay. We're we're getting like we'll either lose the thread of dawn in yeah. talking through that. I like I I do want to talk through Gloria yeah. and Ben, but I don't. I want to make sure we don't that okay. we finish up with the dawn stuff. Um, so and, and particularly like the key stuff too that we haven't yes. got to yet. So the dawn stuff. Glory mm -hmm. obviously finds her again. Glory still doesn't know what she is, and so you know. Yeah. She's here because she, it's more just targeting the family member, you know, of, you know, maybe I can find information on what Buffy knows. And if not, you know, she can kill her and send a message just like she's been meaning to. There's, there's no, there's no spidey senses of like, oh, this is the key or it might be her. And, um, and there's an interesting inversion here too, because you get glory being the one suspicious of what dawn and ben were talking about versus dawn being suspicious of what other people are talking about that so right. there, there there's an interesting sort of play on that yeah. suspicion and paranoia uh right. in in right. glory as well of i know you were talking to ben what was going on right you know right. what were you telling him what was he telling you um and yeah. that sort of thing so 
yeah. I, I, I like that little aspect of it too. Yeah, that's good. Um, and then again, with Dawn being sort of clever, I like that again, what she does is double duty in the same way of like, you know, she gets to go steal stuff and she gets Spike's protection here. She gets, you know, asks Glory what the key is and what's its history and what does it look yeah. like, which is both getting Glory to just keep talking so that she's stalling for time. And also, this is all the stuff she wants to know anyway. You know, this is her, you know, Buffy said she needed real answers. Well, this is like the best place to get real answers is from Glory. Right, right. Um, well, you can it, tell her everything she knows, so. And it, it's like that thing of like who – if you want to know about something, who's the best person to ask? It's, you know, the one who's the enthusiast, right? Who's the right. obsessive, uh, whatever. It's like, uh, if for some reason you ever wanted to know about Pokemon, you go to like the 10 year old who has every Pokemon card and like knows right. all of the, you know, different attributes of every whatever, you know, creature in the yeah. card decker. So yeah. I, I like that um, that she goes there, and you get like you get like Glory being kind of a fangirl in, in a way, sure. like you know of of the key, like oh well, last time I saw it, it was sparkly and green, and it was yeah. like like a very I don't right. know. Just... Well, and she always talks about it in that very possessive. It's mm. my key, right? It's mine, and I want it, and I want it back, and you're keeping it. It's very like you know, right. It is something right. It's it's not just fangirl. It's like creepy stalker fangirl. Right, right. <laughs> well, and it's obviously like like she's obsessive and possessive in the sense that like if the knights are trying to destroy the key, Glory obviously does not want that. She wants the key safe so that she can use it, and so it's like you know vitally important to her that this thing remain sort of you know whole and everything. Yeah. Um. So I like that kind of, again, the way that she's able to use that to her advantage. Um, and, you know, long enough for Buffy and the others to come to the rescue. Um, I mean, I feel like we kind of talked about the family stuff. There's obviously the kind of reconciliation of, you know, Buffy sort of does convince her that, you know, it doesn't matter where you came from. We're the same now. So, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter to them, you know, that she is the key or that she's different or anything. So, yeah. um, I feel like we can talk about the mythology stuff now, unless there's anything else you wanted to say well, about Dawn. Well, just, just that, um, you know, there's that moment of like, you know, this is summer's blood. You get Buffy catching the, you know, yeah. crowbar and, and getting cut by it. And so, uh, you know, there's that, you know, there's that idea of like, now she's cut too. Right. It, and it's mm -hmm. almost like, it's almost like, you know, the, well, I was going to say blood brothers, obviously blood sisters, sisters, I guess would be the, right, there's like the blood ritual of, yeah. it, of like, yeah. We, right. Like you mix blood with each other and you're sort of bonded and everything. Right. So that, you know, so there, you know, this is summer's blood, like we're, we're the same. There's this, you know, idea that they're connected. And I do, I do feel like at the end you get Dawn accepting that, like, yeah. like she still sort of insists, insists, you know, no, we're not, we're not the same, whatever. And then 
I, I think where it is, where she sort of accepts it, is when she admits, I'm so scared. It's like, by accepting, you know, the, the fact that I'm a summer, it, like, is also accepting the fact that, like, hey, wait, summers tend to get, like, attacked a lot and, you know, like, yeah. get put in danger and stuff. Um, and, of course, the fact that, like, you know, she is, there is still this aspect of her that she's something mystical. Like, the, you know acknowledging that you're a Summers and Buffy's sister doesn't change the fact of your, you know, provenance or origin or, you know, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it. Um, so there is that idea of, you know, um, I, well, I guess I just say like, there is a sort of acceptance by her. Uh, it seems at least to me in the end, um, yeah, that that Buffy does sort of get through to her and that in the end, it really is ultimately about that fear. It's, you know, what was sort of driving her, um, you know, and anger and frustration and other emotional stuff, too. But mm -hmm. um, really the fear of like, what does this mean if I'm not a Summers? Like, I believe and always have thought that I was, you know, then what does that make me? Um, yeah. And what it makes her is, you know, you're a Summers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you also have this bonus part insofar as you're some kind of key. Um, right. Let's talk about the key. Yeah. We get, we've gotten a bunch of stuff already. And like some of what we learn here is just sort of reiteration of that. Um, I think there's some new stuff too, though. But maybe I'm... I mean, it's hard for me to always remember like what we already knew and what we didn't know because I already knew it. <laughs> um, yeah. Sure. So what, what maybe, were there any particular aspects that you, like we knew, we sort of figured out the crazy person angle, right? Yeah. And, so I feel like that was just confirmation of something we kind of already knew. Maybe they hadn't stated it, right. but it was becoming pretty obvious, I think. Right. Um. So, but Spike kind of says it could be anybody with, second sight, you know, like psychic ability or just, you know, your run of the mill, right? you know, lunatics or presumably Joyce in the moments of when she was being affected right. by her, you know, her shadow, um, mm -hmm. that causing her to have this sort of perceptive, you know, second yeah. sight into, yeah. you know, that seemed to be, that seems to explain why, like, in the moment that she fainted, she had this moment of, who are you? You don't belong here. Um, right. So, uh, I guess, I mean, we knew she's a key, and we knew that, again, kind of confirmation of the idea that there are different demon dimensions, and the key kind of, as the name implies, sort of opens a door between them. Mm -hmm. Um but I think we didn't necessarily know. I mean, I, I, I would have imagined or assumed a, a literal kind of key, you know, like a physical thing. Whereas right. here we're getting this information about the energy blob, you know, that like, right. or what Giles says is like an energy matrix vibrating at a dimensional frequency beyond normal human perception. So it's not so oh, much like... So, sounds a lot like a time vortex. There you go. Yeah. So it's not so much... Um, it's like the heart of the TARDIS. Yeah. <laughs> it's Bad Wolf. 
um it's it's not so much like a literal key or a physical object as you know an an energy you know that that vibrates um yeah which which implies what goes along with that to me which is kind of interesting is like okay a key could just be like a normal inanimate object that maybe you put life into it whereas like an energy matrix almost sounds alive in itself you know like like you kind of imagine that you know the tardis has an aspect of life or the time vortex is sort of if not alive and sentient it's sort of alive in some other way in the sense that like energy isn't necessarily alive in itself but it it is the stuff of life kind of sure so like it feels like you know it's not like dawn is made out of like in harry potter they make inanimate objects sort of move of their own like you know have sort of you know the ability to move around it's it dawn isn't necessarily like that she's not like some inanimate thing that was just charmed to act like a human it's like the fact that she's made of energy implies that there's some sort of life in her already. It's just not human life. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, yeah, maybe that gives her a bit more, you know, life that's specific to her and not just life that was granted to her by these monks or whatever. Right. Um, and the form that she's in, like, you know, the question is like, what, does she need to stay in that form? Like, can she right. be transformed again? Or, sure. you know, is there, uh, and, and if so, what happens? You know, I think the other, the other aspect too is, you know, what have we seen Glory doing and, and sort of the way that Giles describes her need to feed off of the energy of the human brain. And so the assumption sort of that Buffy makes, and I think that we make when we hear Key, is that, you know, Glory wants to find her and stick her in a keyhole and give her a good twist. And it's like, right. well, but if she's an energy matrix, that's not what you do with it. So what do you do with it? Well, Glory seems to like sticking her fingers sucking in energy. people and yeah. sucking energy. So what yeah. what is her end goal here? Right. Um and yeah, like I mean, we don't we don't know those details, but I think we're getting more of the picture, and you know, sort of able to sort of uh, see maybe a direction that it could be going um, mm-hmm. in that regard. I, you know, and and also yeah, like the things of like frequencies and stuff. Like you get um, some of the commentary from like the guys in the you know crazy ward there uh where they're you know you get like you know oh what's what's the frequency which always makes me think of like the song the rem song you know what's yeah, the frequency yeah. Kind of. yeah um and and the uh you know like you know one of them saying like oh it's all spilled out and whatever that actually like there's a sense and i think we've gotten similar things before like you know you're empty there's nothing inside you that there's that there's this person that Dawn is a person, but that like the key or the energy or whatever it is that is the key, like isn't necessarily contained in the body at the same, like that there's like, yes, there's the body, but like the body 
isn't the key. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, like that there's maybe something more to what right. Dawn is and that maybe, that maybe Dawn herself is merely a portal to Dawn as, you know, the human being Dawn is a portal to something bigger that makes up the key. If that makes sense. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I feel like I'm not actually describing it quite as well as I would hope. So um, and I don't want to like give away stuff, but sure. But I do feel like with those, especially with like the crazy rambling, you know, stuff, which is you know, I mean, it's always a risk of like how much do you actually read into that, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like you know we get repeated statements about there being nothing inside her, and that's why mm-hmm. it's like, well, so what does that mean? Is there really nothing inside her? Can they not see like there? You know, we can't see the frequency that spilled out. Like, okay, so what does all this mean? Like, does that mean the monks did a poor job? <laughs> Like, Mm. or does it mean that there's just no way to contain the key, actually? And that, yeah, you know, Dawn is ultimately just sort of like a facade to something bigger or different Mm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't. I I don't all good know the answer to that. I mean, I (laughs) I don't know good way of of. I definitely don't know the answers to that. Um, Um, But but I do think think you're right that we're learning more than we did know. Um, And um, and and we're learning also Glory's perspective on it too, right? Yes, through the conversation. So you get um, you do get like her sort of wistful, nostalgic, uh, possessive, you know, commentary on it. yeah. You know, oh, it was bright green swirly shimmer and it brought out the blue in my eyes. Like that yeah. like that was the main thing. Like right. forget everything else that it's good for, you know, it's cosmic brilliance or whatever, but it brought out the blue in her eyes. Right. Um right. it's been around a long time, just this side of forever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which I like I like that phrase. Um, uh-huh. uh but Glory's older than that. Right. So we also get a little bit about her too. Um, Right. Which again, with the shifting perspective on Dawn, in some ways, I mean, obviously she's the youngest of the group and that she's 14 and she's constantly reminded of that. She's also even younger than that. She's really only kind of six months old, but in some ways she's millennia, you know, that she's been around this, you know, just the side of forever. So there's an aspect of her that's older than all the rest of them by, you know, by who knows how long. Right, so, right. Um, you know, that's a kind of interesting shift in her, you know, uh, her role, I think. Yep. Um, and we also, I feel like, well, the, sorry, I was just going to say, um, we also hear Glory, uh, when Don asks, is it evil? Oh, totally. <laughs> well, no, not really. Well, I guess it depends yeah. on your point of view. And, you know, so there's, you know, it's interesting, too, because we don't know really, like, okay, so it's an energy matrix, and like you were saying, it has a life, but we don't know how animate, I guess, that life is, or, like, right. clearly, it seems it needs protecting, right? And we have, yeah. like, the monks protecting it. We have the uh, uh, 
you know, knights of Byzantium trying to kill it mm-hmm. or destroy it or whatever. Like they don't necessarily know it's a person, I guess, at this point. Um, or do they? I can't remember if they do or not right now. Um, so, you know, they, uh, you know, like there are different, it can be affected by mortals apparently in some way, shape or form, either protected or killed or whatever. Um, but it, you know, we don't know much about its own sort of built in or, you know, uh, you know, like by making it human, did the monks in some way give it more autonomy than it even had as like an right. energy blob or whatever you want to call it? Like, right. you know, as an energy blob, is was it sort of just like, okay, I'm sitting here buzzing because I'm energy, you know, but not really able to do much more than that. And so like, in that sense, was it just sort of like a tool that you do stick in a lock and turn or whatever you want to do with it? Or, and, and you know, like by making it human, like is there something, you know, is there giving it a sort of uh, uh, autonomy and agency that it didn't have before? Right. Um, See, here's an interesting analogy. So the question to me is like to, to bring Tolkien in, is it more of a Silmaril, which is, you know, just a, you know, a very beautiful mesmerizing object, but just an object, no special, you know, it doesn't have agency or personality or real life of its own. It, it's, you know, but just the, the sheer beauty of it causes, you know, all the different characters, good and bad, to, you know fight wars and betray each other and, you know, kill each other and all this stuff just to possess it? Or is it the one ring? And there's, you know, you know, is this Glory's one ring? That's something of her kind of personality. Like she, she kind of implies that, oh, it's my key and it brings out the blue in my eyes as if like they're linked in some way, like they belong together. It's my key mm-hmm. and everybody's trying to take it. You know, so she kind of thinks of it at least as, you know, part of her. It's her precious. It's her precious. Um, And but the thing about that is that it it is linked to her in the sense that nobody else could really use that in any way positive. It can only be used really by, you know, uh, Sauron. So, you know, I think that's a, you know, that's a useful distinction to me of. Is there something, you know, intrinsically linked to glory and, quote, evil about the key? Or is it just a tool that people are fighting over and is sort of neutral territory in the the fight? Well, and that's kind of um, Joyce's question, too, when they're in the kitchen with her and Giles and, and Buffy. Um, not so much evil, but is it dangerous? You know, right. and and or well, she she says, is she dangerous? And it's funny because I feel like you can actually read their conversation in two ways. Is she mm-hmm. talking about Dawn, which seems mm-hmm. plausible given everything that's going on, or is she talking about Glory? Like mm-hmm. both of you, that conversation, you could almost read as another one where they're not actually talking about Dawn. Maybe they're talking about Glory and Dawn is just assuming they're talking about her or something. Um, Or it seems just as plausible that they are talking about Dawn. And 
And, you know, Giles sort of says, oh, I assume you mean not, like, in her form, but just, like, as in existence. Like, you know, is electricity dangerous? Well, yes, if you're exposed to a live wire, but as long as everything is, like, sort of wired properly and whatever, Mm -hmm. no, it's a useful, perfectly safe tool to use. Right, right. So, yeah, yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, we have a couple examples there of that. So. so did we want to say anything else about I feel like we did start to kind of cover Ben and Glory. Yeah. Um, and we yeah, did. I mean the, the 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 bits there that are interesting to me is, you know, he says very definitively, Glory can't lay a finger on me. And then like at the end of the episode, she literally like absorbs and replaces him. And then like and he seems to be pretty scared, like, you know, he knows. Now, maybe he's scared for Dawn, and it's not that he she's going to hurt him necessarily, but, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it's good for him to get replaced by Glory. So I, I'm yeah. wondering what he meant by that. Is he is he just wrong about that, or, or is – what does he mean by – you know, her laying a finger on him and what exactly can she do or not to him? Um, so what do you see given what you've seen? <laughs> what, what do you see as their relationship at this point? Because we get, we get Ben, uh, yeah. calling glory, his sister. Yeah. Uh, so there, and, and we've gotten other hints before, like we've gotten like yeah. Glory saying like, well, of course he's, you know, attractive. Like, right. well, why is like, that? Well, we're now related. We, yeah. Like now we know. Yeah. Right. Because they're family. So, of course, yeah. if I'm good looking, of course, Ben's yeah, going to be Of course, my family is. Like, yeah. Um, that kind of thing. Um, but also there's sort of like personality wise. Right. So there's this um, like we, we've talked, I think, in the past Maybe not a whole lot, so we can talk about it more now if if you want. But, you know, I think we've brought up at least that Ben is sort of cleaning up. Like, part he yeah. sees he sees his, you know, with, like, the Queller Demon and stuff, which maybe wasn't a decision we totally like about Ben, you know, mm-hmm. to sort of call that. But also, I you get the sense that maybe his work as a nurse and a doctor and whatever is in sort of direct contravention of glory yeah. sort of wanton chaos and destructiveness. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to lead too much, but I, mm-hmm. I, based on those things, like what, what do you sort of see their relationship as at this point? Um, so the question for me right now is <clears throat> to what extent is he opposed to her um Mm -hmm. either just generally or in trying to stop her from maybe getting the key or or opening you know the doors between dimensions and all that kind of thing like is it is it that they are on opposite sides and he would oppose her or is it just a matter of well there goes my destructive sister again guess i gotta get the mop and clean up it like 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 he says she's a pain but like he's not necessarily against her Mm -hmm. um i that's to me the the 
the big question. So, um, so the sort of morphing aspect. Yeah. Well, and so how, I did. How do you, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I did kind of wonder when, like I said, when Don says, you're Ben, I did wonder how literally to take that line. You know, like, are they, are they one in any sort of way? Um, or do they just have the ability to meld into each other? Is it just Glory that has this ability and Ben gets no say? Um it kind of briefly occurred to me to wonder if Ben was Glory all along and she can kind of like shapeshift, but then her working against herself and hiding information from herself didn't seem to make much sense. So I'm not sure that I would go with that theory, but like, well, um, and, it, and I she, don't, she I don't even, know yet. She even says like, you know, she's like, what were you talking about? And, and, Don is like you don't remember, and yeah, yeah. And, so and it's she not says just, she says it's not just that she's like tricking her and pretending to be him, right? Um, it didn't seem to me. Well, and she goes, "That's uh, Glory." You know, says that was Ben. Like that wasn't me. That was Ben yeah. you were talking to. So yeah. I, I feel like we can at least say that they're two distinct they're people, two different people. Yeah. Um. Or personalities, mm -hmm. um, if you want to look at it that way. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes: I don't want to lead, but I, <laughs> but I do want to make. I, I do want to sort of prod. Um, yeah. The question becomes: Did Glory take over Ben's body, uh -huh. or or like do they share a body? Like, mm. is, is it, is the siblingness, like, you know, more of like a Siamese twin sort of thing, but mm. like in a cosmic sort of way. <laughs> right. Um, hmm. Interesting. All right. I'm, I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I don't, again, like, I don't want to lead and, and prod too much, but like. Yeah. Why, why, so why do you think Ben says Gloria can't lay a finger on me? Like, he, he seems pretty confident there. And, right. And so the fear that he expresses to Dawn when he finds out she's the key, what, what do you, what are your thoughts on those aspects? And I know, I really, so like, I know we're like way over, so maybe we yeah. just need to like drop it and move on. Um, although I do have one other thing that I want to mention before we do that, but right. Right. So what, what are I your mean, thoughts about Glory's ability to lay fingers on Ben and all of that? Oh, and, and also, sorry, one other thing to throw in there. Ben does seem concerned about the fact that Byzantium is around. Like he yeah. notices them and seems like legitimately upset by that fact. Like not just right. like, Oh good. They'll stop Glory. But like he seems concerned about their presence as well. Right, right. Um, uh, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, I feel like that line would make 
that line about she can't lay a finger on me again makes more sense if his fear isn't so much for himself as it is for Dawn and the others. So like, you know, there's something which protects him from he's he may be worried about the knights and they're going after the key and wanting to help Buffy and help the mental patients and all this stuff, but he's not, you know, worried about what glory could do to him. I mean, now if glory is a God and their siblings, I assume that means that Ben is a God too. So maybe that's his protection is, you know, maybe he can't stop her from doing all this stuff, but he could stop her from hurting him. Um, so he's not particularly worried about that. If, as you say, they share, you know, a body in some way, then maybe that's literally she can't lay a finger on him because <laughs> they can't share the same right. space ever, you know, <laughs> like they can't ever be in the room together. So she really can't hurt him that way. And, um, and, or even if that were the case and Ben died, what would that mean for glory? Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of fail safe there. Um, so. And, yeah. And okay. So, so just one other, so one last thing um, for that, for the Ben and Gloria stuff. Um, also you get this, you know, possessiveness, uh, selfishness, whatever from glory. And, and, you know, again, with Ben being a nurse and everything, he's, you know, helpful and, you know, trying to save people's lives and whatever. But there's also the, you know, fact that glory's trying to find the key and bring it to her and whatever. And Ben, as soon as he finds out that, uh, Dawn is the key, he tells her to run, get as far away as you can. So there's also like this right. anti, you know, like polar opposite reaction there too of like, like right. he, I guess what I'm saying is if you, if you assume, and I'm not saying it's a correct or incorrect assumption one way or the other, but if you assume that like, you know, because glory is a God, then therefore Ben is a God as well. You would think he would be able to make use of, the key just like glory would mm -hmm. in whatever way and and you can maybe make other assumptions about what he can or does do and how he sustains himself um does he need the same sort of energies that glory does but maybe find it in a more humane way than she does or that mm -hmm. kind of thing i again not trying to lead or prod one way or the other um right but just those are questions I think to ask if we're looking at, you know, these sort of two figures as siblings and mm -hmm. co-equals and, uh, or at least co-existing, you know, yeah. uh, people or whatever. So, um, but yeah, just, just that there does seem to be that there, there are connections certainly, but there also are like sort of polar opposites in, you know, personality and, Mm -hmm. uh reaction and all that kind of stuff too right all right well we'll certainly get more about ben and glory obviously yeah. as the season goes on um one last thing i wanted to sort of mention is just that we get um you, you know we get like sort of the first use of like pre-planned tactical spells like in mm -hmm. battle uh with um Willow primarily, although Tara obviously helps as well. 
But it also, like, I want to point out the toll that it takes on yeah. her. Yeah. Because, I, and I mean, you know, we've certainly seen Willow do magic before, but we've, even from the beginning, like, when she first started doing magic, we've talked about how it's more, like, chemistry almost. You know, like, it's mm-hmm. science. It's it's very controlled. This is, like, you know, battlefield tactic, you know, right. uh, technical stuff that is messy and can go wrong. Right, <laughs> um, right. Like, you know, she's still working at the kinks. Well, what are the kinks? I don't know where I sent Glory. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's one of the kinks. I like Glory falling, you know, yeah. her, her kind of right. plummet I like that her. it's not like they just sent her like miles away to some other like spot on the earth. Yeah. It's like they just sent like, her in a direction somewhere. Yeah. And it was yeah. like the trajectory just took her like, who right. knows, you know, 40,000 feet in the air or whatever. Right, right. Um, and we don't know, like, above where, really. Right, um, right. Yeah, and her kind of realize doing the like the, the, the comedy, like, Wiley Coyote fall, where right. you have a moment to realize you're going to fall uh, right before you do. Um, yeah. It's funny. Um, um, but, yeah, like, I mean, it, it definitely, like, Willow faints, basically, and she's bleeding from her nose and stuff. And so right. I don't think that we've seen that before in the use right. of magic. Um Right, where, I mean, definitely there's been times where the magic is unpredictable and dangerous, but not where, like, the sheer kind of kickback of the spell is itself, like, yeah, is, like, harmful, so. Um, um, And and we also get, so we've already sort of been introduced um, when the council came and did their evaluation of Buffy and her friends, uh, or tried to do an evaluation. Uh, You know, we get, like, the the one watcher talking to Tara and Willow and asking yeah. like, what, what, what level, a depth are level are you? And Tara's like five. five. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we get Giles here sort of um, implicitly sort of acknowledging that. And he, he said that, you know, that's an incredibly dangerous spell for an adept at your level, um, right. which implies that maybe they figured out what level they actually what are, level she is. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. since then. Um and and Willow says, yep, won't be trying that one again soon. But yeah, you know, again, just this, not the first time that Giles has sort of expressed uh, concern over Willow and her doing magic and, you know, the rate at which she's sort of increasing her abilities. But um, again, sort of like this might be another one of those moments of what what aren't we being told about magic that uh perhaps Giles knows and hasn't told Willow and maybe it would be better if he told her. Um yeah. yeah. You know, that sort of thing. So uh, you know, that was an incredibly dangerous spell for an adept at your level. Well he seems to kn- he seems to know like what level she's what level at she's and, at yeah. and what it means like what levels one should be at to do these types of spells. So like <clears throat> is there you know, is there a neglect on his part for not maybe better instructing her on what that is um sort of to the point of the council (laughs) um or is it just that she's taking on more than she can chew um and that sort of thing so you know again not to dwell on it too much or whatever but i i did want to point out because i again i think it's sort of the first time that we see this sort of reaction to doing magic Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah all right awesome all right well 
20 some odd minutes <laughs> late. Um, let's talk about Doctor Who. Okay. So, Davros. Yeah. Was not was not predicting that. Um, no. When I first. So. No, I wasn't. Because we've seen him die, right? Or. Well. So, I mean, I know die is a loose yeah, term is, in right, Doctor right. Who. It, the last time he was only in, of the new series, he was only in the season four finale. Um, yeah. Of when the planets get stolen. Um, right. And, Journey, and Journey's End, it, it's sort of, I name you the destroyer of worlds, and right. like everything's burning and falling, and you kind of don't see what happens to Davros. So there's sort of a... He he okay. he might have died yeah. in the fire. If you don't see a body, <clears throat> is he really dead? Kind of a thing. So it was sort of a slightly open fate. Okay, all um, right, all right. I I was thinking of yes, he's in a blazing inferno. He must have died. Right. I guess right. that's technically. I should know better. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know, like Missy says, "Hey, I'm and, alive. Get over it." And to, I, I'm <laughs> like, here, back, whatever. It's a big surprise. Yeah. So even death is is yeah. not always final. Yeah. Um, uh, which is good when we get to the end of this episode um, and talk about that ending. Yeah. Uh, so Davros. Yeah, but I was I okay. So I do want to point out that this is uh, we are recording this episode. Uh, uh, less than a week before the last episode of the season will air. So this is the only episode where I don't uh, necessarily know the full ending to the season. Um, But it's also very recent. So I can also say that it was a surprise for me too. I don't think they advertised that Davros would be in this episode. So when the little kid says his name is Davros, you're kind of, supposed to be going you know whoa. having the like whoa shock moment right. um so yeah right. um yeah okay. so did you want to start with the kind of yeah prologue well, of want, him as a child i i did want to start with his child because i think i think the structure of this episode is um somewhat interesting i i think with the exception of the very end like the very final scene Mm-hmm. The stuff with Davros as a child happens before everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not 100% sure that the final scene doesn't also happen before everything else. But right. I'm not positive. Right. No, I, I think the other. I think that's what you're led to believe. But I agree that the order and the timing is left somewhat ambiguous so Um, i won't confirm or deny anything but we get a planet that's sort of uh embattled uh you know it's it's there's apparently been a very long war going on um which Mm -hmm. the doctor confirms when he says uh you know sort of by the mix of technology like like technology has evolved Right. You know, apparently several times since the beginning right. of this war. Um, right. And, uh, you know, we so we but we start off just seeing like, you know, these soldiers or whatever. And and there's like aircraft uh, and then this like kid running, you know, through like the battlefield. We're not really sure where the kid came from. Right. Um, yeah. He's just sort of there running um, and the soldiers sort of seem surprised as well. Um, so. 
the the hand hand mines. Um, okay, I, I I love that. I I got a huge kick out of that. I but... mean, it's it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> it reminded me of uh, you know me. I'm terrible with episode names, but the the episode when Amy gets pulled down uh, into the Silurian, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, uh, whatever. The hungry earth. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing. Although this is apparently much more deadly than that. Um, because she turned out all right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I like, I mean, there's the pun, obviously, which sure. is funny. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's a nice kind of alien interpretation of what a landmine would be. Like, you and, know, instead of a bomb, it's a literal hand that pulls you down. And the the eyes and the palms are kind of reminiscent of Daleks anyway. So you're sort of put in the frame of these feel like they could originate on the planet of the Daleks, you know? Well, Um, and just the, the creepy factor of, you know, hands coming out of the earth. I mean, we've mm -hmm. seen it in Buffy, you know, you see it as sort of like a standard zombie or vampire or whatever, you know, trope. Um, so that, so yeah. Okay. Um, so he's there. He's in this hand minefield. Uh, the soldier tries to help him and, of course, gets dragged under. Um, the question then becomes, does, is the soldier now? Like, has his hand become... Right, do you become a hand mine right. when you go down there? Right. Um, anyway, so that's a separate issue. Uh, and then we get, you know, the sonic screwdriver. Mm. getting thrown at Dabri, at the kid's feet. We don't know if he's mm-hmm. Dabri's yet. Uh, and um, apparently that's to create... I don't... Well, never mind. I was going to say, I don't understand why the Doctor couldn't just create an acoustic corridor and keep the screwdriver. But, you know, <laughs> then you lose the dramatic effect of throwing the screwdriver. It's through flying him. through the air, uh, yeah. And, of course, it's Chekhov's sonic screwdriver. Right. So we see it appear again later. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We haven't had well, and, we haven't had Chekhov's crossbow in a while, but we have uh, Chekhov's crossbow. Well, and important that not just oh it'll be important later, but the doctor um, when it shows up, he no longer has one. Right. You know, he says, "I lost my screwdriver." So, like, you know, I mean, Ooh, for him, who knows before. how long it's. Who, who knows how long it's been, you know, right. maybe we, maybe not that long or we don't quite know how long he's been without it. You know, Davros has obviously kept this thing his entire life um, and right. it makes its way back to the doctor. Um, yeah, his, his entire but, protracted life. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, um, but, so, I mean, yeah. and that's fine, you know, whatever. Uh, we get, but, you know, the kids, the kids are clearly scared. And I, I think, so I guess sort of the main thing that I took away from from this whole thing is that you know okay like the ethical question of would you like say would you go would you kill Hitler when would he you was kill a child Hitler, yeah. you know that yeah. kind of thing or any other child or or would you try to help them and you know nurture them in a better way than maybe they were <laughs> yeah um that kind of thing uh initially the doctor does neither he learns who you know he learns who the kid is 
and mm-hmm. abandons him. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are, so there's several, like three maybe flashbacks, mm-hmm. right? Throughout yeah. this, the episode. Um, you know, so that right. this happens, not necessarily all in the first one, but, uh, you know, the doctor abandons him. And then we learn later that Davros remembers. Like that's that's the the colony sarf is, you know, his thing is is he saying you know Davros knows mm-hmm. who you are. I guess you know what is the thing that he knows. I guess it's the it, it's the fact that uh, this is the doctor who abandoned who did him. this right. Uh, and so, because I was thinking about, it, I actually quite like how that works out because we obviously we know that the Doctor has faced Davros a number of times in the mm-hmm. past, you know, in the classic series, and then, um, like you said, at the end of season four, uh, yeah, you know, so he faced him a number of times, but those have all been in as different faces, right? So it maybe, I mean, maybe Davros could have guessed. Because mm-hmm. of, you know, having a sonic screwdriver or whatever. But even the sonic screwdrivers would have looked different. And it's not mm-hmm. like sonic screwdrivers are necessarily unique to the Doctor. Like, right. it's it's Time Lord technology. So, like, right. presumably other Time Lords could have sonic screwdrivers. Or, as Jack has, other sonic devices, you know. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's not necessarily... Uh, clear until Davros confronts you know or would have wind of like this new face of the doctor Mm -hmm. um you know that that this is so you know what does Davros know he knows now like that this is the doctor who uh abandoned him as a child and you know he and he remembers he remembers that yeah event he remembers what the doctor did in leaving him yeah Um, yeah I like the way in this episode, um, and it, we can talk about this in the second part too, um, is, and it's always ambiguous. I don't think I necessarily have a, a clear understanding of it at all, but it's kind of left slightly open to what extent things are fixed or are they being, are they just being realized? Are they being rewritten? All these, like, is it a case sure. of, is it a case of, you know, Davros knows now because it just happened and it's like a new memory or, um, or like you said, did it always happen? And he just didn't put the face together that maybe this is just a recent revelation or maybe he's new all along and he's been holding on to this, this knowledge the whole time. We don't know. And I like that it could be any of those things. And like to kind of jump ahead slightly to the end, like there's the, the, the third time with the flashback, the doctor comes back with the gun. So, okay, or is, it a is flashback? this, <laughs> or is it a flashback? What's happening? Is this a right. memory? Is this a new time travel event? Are events being rewritten here? Is this, well, is like, it, it's all kind of left, you know, I think we'll get a little bit more insight in the second part, but there is a kind of sense of, I'm not quite sure at all that I know definitively what, happened you know or like sure. what is everyone's it, all these things are sort of left open to you know um what order and to what extent people are aware of all of these different things sure um, and and i think so 
and there's that question in the middle right or not quite in the middle like closer to the end maybe but where the doctor says you know basically Davros made the Daleks but who made Davros and I mean I think sort of the provocative answer to that is well you know the doctor because of this particular event but then there's also the idea that like well I mean the kid grew up on this planet you Mm -hmm. know of warfare and stuff so did the doctor have a hand certainly it seems right or he didn't give him a hand you know Mm -hmm. is the other way to look at it but yeah uh does that mean the doctor is solely responsible i don't know um but i also like the way that it sets up and and so okay we're getting into sort of later davros stuff now too um i like the way that though that it sets up the primary contention right because this seems to be and and i don't i haven't seen classic who or whatever so you know Mm -hmm. whatever but the implication here especially with like the employing of you know all the different voices and stuff um you know the implication here is that this is and and i think davros even says you know old davros even says like this is the argument that we've been having all along is you know is compassion better or was it you know good that i made the daleks who are these sort of pure hate which bring about sort of the ultimate you know it it sort of like distills life into this moment of pure being Mm -hmm. alive kind of thing um and you can argue whether that's true or not but but now you have this paradox right of if the doctor shows compassion then he you know then all of his friends and however many other people you know throughout all of time and space the Daleks and Davros have destroyed, you know, uh, by letting Davros live. But if he kills Davros, then he's sort of acknowledging that compassion is wrong. At least sometimes compassion is wrong. And like, even if it's only one time, then Davros wins. Like, like it, you don't have to say like compassion is always wrong to Mm -hmm. negate, the truth you know to negate you like if if you're if you're if your contention is compassion is always right then you only have to find one instance in which it's not right in order to disprove that you don't have to say it's wrong in every instance right right which is not a point which is unique to davros because in claris is something very similar right before they uh you know when deciding whether or not to kill Missy in the last finale, she kind of said, you know, if you've ever let her live, then, you know, Danny's death is on you and all this stuff and, and everyone she's ever killed is on you. Um, you know, and you kind of get, um, you know, we're going to talk about Clara and Missy a little bit later, but there's that, that sense of Clara kind of points out, well, you maybe suspected or even hoped that she was alive. And the implication being you're wrong to, to have hoped that, you know, that, you know, and I don't think Clara is, is, I wouldn't put Clara on the level of Davros necessarily at all, but um, there's still the sense that can there be um, instances in which doing the compassionate thing is the wrong choice? Um, You know, 
so Davros sort of wants that to be true in order to like win this argument with the doctor. Um, Clara sort of seems to sort of imply that that's true, just more on a sort of personal level. Um, but yeah. And, and the fact that they've been having this argument, you know, it, it, you know, when and if we dip our toes into classic who I think will, you know, obviously see more of that. The, the one scene that's really highlighted is Tom Baker. Who's like, you know, got the bits of wire that he's deciding there's like a whole episode arc about Davros and the Daleks and, you know, and, and he has the kind of, should I, should I kill Hitler or not speech? So this is kind of an old, an old theme with Davros. And so that kind of maybe implies that maybe he has known this and he's been sitting on this information that he's been waiting to play this, like, this is his trump card, you know, like in, in our age long argument, I'm going to finally win this one because I know that you abandoned me, you know, uh, way back when, um, you know, and the very personal toll that it takes at the end of the episode to be kind of the definitive way of proving, you know, just by uh, ever letting me go, you know, look at all the things that have been caused from that. Um, the other thing I want to point out, which, you know, I, I saw, I've seen other people say this, so I, I'm not taking the credit for this observation necessarily, but um, the, the it, it is kind of a surprise when Davros says who he was, but the characterization of, of the kid as like, you know, the slightly, um, you know, petulant way he's like, you know, it's not just please help me doctor. It's like, wait a minute, you promised, you would said you would save me, come and do it. Like, you know, he's already this little, there's already hints of his little dictator, you know, like just the fact that it's a very commanding, you know, uh, you promised and, and you need to deliver kind of attitude. Sure. Um, sure. So kind of hinting at who he is, maybe even before they really come out and say it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess at the same token, I mean, kids standing in the middle of a hand minefield and, you know, scared and there's war all around him and whatever, like, yeah, I'm not sure I wouldn't yell out those same things as like, Hey, you promised you'd help me sure. out here. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about the sort of prologue stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, or what I'm calling the prologue stuff. I know there's like actually a prologue <laughs> and then there's like yeah. the, the stuff with Colony Sarf and, and Missy and Clara before we get kind of to the doctor and, you know, moving into him and Davros and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we get, yeah. well, there's we, actually kind of two prologues actually the one, um, I sent, which I'll link to, is uh, where he's on Karn. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, there's actually another one, which is like sort of a 10-minute prequel called 
the doctor's meditation, um, which I can't find online, but is still on demand, I think. So maybe it'll go online when they take it down from that, but, um, or it'll go on the DVD or whatever. It, not much actually happens with it. It's pretty much the doctor in medieval England doing everything except meditating. So it's like a bit of silliness where he like, they decide to build a visitor center, like because he can't bear to sit still and actually meditate. So it's sort of setting up this idea of where he is in England and why he's there and sort of what the purpose is behind the meditation, even if he's not very good at doing that. Um, but I think the one that you saw was the, the bit on Karn where um, he's sort of hiding around behind the sisterhood while, you know, uh, I guess before or after Colony Sarf kind of shows up, like it seems to be around the same time. Um, and this is sort of him deciding to go for his little meditation retreat um, and, and handing over the confession dial. Yeah. Yeah. And so, right. And so this is, so what's interesting here is that like, I mean, you sort of alluded to it before that we don't really know how much time is going on between these different pieces. But I almost get the sense that like there's not very much time. Yeah. Like like yeah. that like he decides to abandon, you know, child Davros mm -hmm. and like almost immediately goes to Karn. <laughs> like mm -hmm. like that like this isn't a uh you know, end of waters of Mars, you know, ten yeah. ten seeing the Ood and going on, you know, a right. several months long holiday and getting right. married to Queen Elizabeth the first in the meantime, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you kind of get the sense that he maybe intentionally did this, but also know that it's crossing some sort of line and is already sort of, you know, resigned himself to whatever comes next, you know, like there's a sense of, I, you know, he's decided to, to not save Davros and he knows there is going to be some sort of price to be paid for that. Um, you know, whatever that might be. Um, so maybe it is a kind of instant, you know, uh, he goes straight to Karn and then to his meditation. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's no way to like prove <laughs> that because we you know as we've seen before like you yeah. know a, a, an instant could cover right. you know millennia worth of adventures so um but it you know the sense like just if mm -hmm. i were like a betting person that's the way yeah. it seems to me um yeah. and so so with Colony Sarf, like I, this is, I assume this is like a new character that's introduced. Like this isn't. I think so. Yeah. Uh, so, like a classic, uh, mm -hmm. you know, character that like uh, Davros has used before or whatever. Um, although it is interesting that everyone seems to know like who he works for. So like, right. The sort of assumption is that he's been there, you know, like he's been around a while, even though he's like sort of new to us mm -hmm. that he's sort of, known and 
uh, universally disliked. Right. <laughs> uh, this, Not the most know, Sort of despised. Yeah. Um, you know, and and apparently, so uh, we we broke down. So sarf we discovered is a Welsh term for serpent, mm-hmm. um, and colony is literally so like this is literally colony of serpents. You know, right, right. Uh, is this guy and you know which makes sense when you see like the individual snakes sort of coming mm-hmm. in and out and doing things and um the fact that he says he's a democracy um yeah yeah uh and that kind yeah, of yeah and thing. everything is in the plural like we are colony sarf we bring harm <laughs> right not like we come in peace it's we bring harm right letting you know his intentions up front um so anyway the uh like as as a sort of like bounty hunter or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. him like i think he's effective i don't know that like he's that important um per se sure. like like as other than you know beyond the role of like delivering the message and sort of being scary enough we we do get the sense so even um just the one thing we get from the doctor about him is like oh you know you want to know how dangerous i am well davro sent you so it's like mm. it's not like he's just any old bounty hunter it's that like he apparently is a rather formidable one so it you know like again that idea of like he's been around his reputation is well known and um you know that sort of thing but you know again like beyond beyond that okay he does his job and he brings the doctor to davros and that's that um Mm -hmm. so the main piece then is with Clara and mm-hmm. Missy and Unit. Uh, we get Clara again in the mm-hmm. classroom teaching, mm-hmm. um, you know, her students or whatever. And we don't know how long she's been here since her last sort of adventure that we yeah. saw, um, which I guess is the Christmas one, right? So, yeah. um, you know, we don't know how long she's been here or maybe there were others in between, you know, uh, this and that. Um, you know, uh, some humorous moments. She's teaching Jane Austen. Apparently mm-hmm. they've gone to visit Jane Austen at some point. Um, mm-hmm. And she knows how she kisses and that's all well and good. Um, yeah. But, you know, she notices the planes out the window and I like the little, like she draws the circle uh, presumably to see like, is the plane moving? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, uh, and the use of like getting the kids involved of like, you know, go on to Twitter and news sites. Why would kids be going on to news sites, but you know, whatever. Uh, And, and, you know, using this sort of hashtag to like, presumably to draw someone's attention. Although it seems like unit is already, pretty attentive like people already know what's going on um yeah yeah and so they bring her in and uh they sort of work through like okay what's what's going on how can we excuse me how can we sort of find the doctor and apparently they have dedicated lines to the doctor that he probably doesn't remember (laughs) but of course missy knows about them and right, remembers right. them and contacts them um, and figures out how to get Clara to meet her. And so, like, I mean, there's lots of little tricks. I don't have 
really anything to say about unit and stuff here other than just that like we get Clara acting again sort of doctorish with them. Yeah. In, yeah. In so no, far that's as... um that's kind of what I wanted to point out too was um with unit, I mean Clara's even uh almost the leader in the scenario. So not only is she mm. like a trusted, like she's she's pretty much already out the door by the time they're calling her. So everyone assumes that Clara is gonna help, but like she kind of takes the lead and does most of the legwork in terms of you know figuring things out so that doctorishness is is still sort of and the fact that she even doesn't necessarily want to call the doctor until they've got something that she says like you know like they're trying to get in touch with the doctor and she's like well he's not gonna want to know anything until we have something like you have to have a story already before so she's sort of inclined to let's figure it out ourselves before we even get him involved. Yeah. Um, I don't really have anything for Kate. Um, I I would point out, I had to look up her name, but Jack, I guess, is this new kind of assistant who, mm. you know, Osgood died in the last finale. So in the absence of Osgood, we have a new kind of sciencey, you know, person. Uh, with unit so just a little change in personnel there um that's worth noting but i don't think other than getting clara and missy together i don't know that unit really do anything um that important sure um yeah and missy yeah not dead back big surprise never mind <laughs> <laughs> right right and yeah you just I guess in some cases you just have to try to ignore any logical sensibility. Yeah. And actually we're going to get a little bit more uh, data on the question of how, or if, if was she dead? Was she not dead? How did she escape it? We'll, we'll learn a little bit more about that. So um, we're just going to table that question for the moment, I think. Um, but you get just like, just like with, uh, Spike and Dawn, you get a kind of shaky alliance between the big bad and one of the good guys, you know, um, mm -hmm. because not because they're, uh, really best friends or trust each other necessarily, but because their, uh, interests sort of align for the moment. Um, Right. So, you know, you get, so what do you think of the fact that it's Missy that gets the confession dial um, and not Clara? Yeah. Well, okay. So with the prologue of the doctor visiting Karn, he says, you know, like he tells the whatever priestess or whatever she is, mm -hmm. um, like, hey, you know who to give this to, right? Yeah. And so presumably, like, there's two things to do with that, right? Either the priestess does and gives it to the right person or doesn't uh, yeah. give it to the right person. Um, either because she doesn't know or she chooses not to <laughs> mm -hmm. give it to the person the doctor would. Um, I mean, I not that I think we need to read too far into that. I would assume by the fact that Clara tried to touch it that, like, 
in fact, it was not meant for her. And that, mm. that therefore means it was meant for the mistress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my thoughts on that. Sure. Like, <laughs> I mean, going back to whatever, end of season three, I guess, mm-hmm. was it? When mm-hmm. uh, they're on, you know, we have the 10 getting wicked old and mm-hmm. uh, and then coming back and then the master, you know, dying. Yeah. And uh, refusing to regenerate. Uh, you know, we got the whole the whole sense of like we're the only ones left mm-hmm. like there's no no other time lords you know and you know that we get we get uh i i, I don't i'm i'm i can't i don't remember when it is but we get the whole thing of like oh uh back when we were like eight years old and first shown the time vortex you know, mm-hmm. we each looked into it and saw our own paths kind of thing. And, you know, there's a sense there where, you know, just like uh, even like Missy says here, uh, you know, like, oh, I was with the doctor. You know, we've been best friends or whatever since, you know, the cloister wars. And oh, what are the, what are the three things now? Uh, the cloister wars and since he was a little girl and, you know, right. since whatever. Um, or he like still, he stole the moon or something like that. Oh yeah. And, and seduced the president's wife or something. Right. 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 Um, or one stole of those was a lie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One, one of those things is a lie. <laughs> so who knows? Cause they all seem equally plausible and implausible, you know, like, right. Right. Um, I like this version of Time Lord Two Truths and a Lie. Like, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like, they're all equally crazy. So, uh, you know, so there is a sense, even though, you know, like Claire is like, oh, but you, you've tried to kill the doctor. Oh, well, he's tried to kill me. Like, who yeah. hasn't done that with your best friend? You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Um, but there, there is, I think. I think it could be easy to dismiss what Missy says about like there being sort of a higher order friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, because on the one hand, she's just, she is just trying to get Clara's goat, uh, you know, by calling her like the dog of, right. you know, the trio. Like right. if, if we're, you know, a family, then the doctor and I are husband and wife and you're the dog. You're the, family. yeah. Yeah. Um, like you're not even like the kid or you know the neighbor no. or whatever you're no a you're a lower you're a lower life order life. of being and we indulge you yeah. but um yeah right right we'll pitch in Fiji but you know okay. yeah um but i do think that there i mean i i don't i don't know how you could expect there not to be one just again because of the the connection of being the last two of their species to still be kicking around mm-hmm. um but also because like it's not just that they're the last two of their species but that they do have these points of connection throughout their lives right up you know starting with that 
we were children together and played or whatever you want to call it together. Um, you know, I don't know if I wholly believe Missy, given the kiss she gave him, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the mausoleum there, <laughs> yeah. uh, that, you know, there isn't a sexual component to it as well. Um, sure. But, you know, there's, like, I, I certainly wouldn't want to reduce it to only that, like Clara mm-hmm. sort of initially does. Um, and, and Clara is very sort of uh, dismissive about the mm-hmm. whole thing. Um, but also I think that's coming from a place of... You uh, killed my boyfriend. <laughs> well, that, but also, like, I was actually thinking more of her own relationship with the, do- the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, more of... Uh, why wasn't I the one who was chosen? But, you know, again, this is like, I think this goes back to the idea of like the companion always thinks that they know more than they actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, but how could they? Like, even if, even if you spent an entire human lifetime with the doctor, you still couldn't know a fraction of what right. he was and what he was about and what he had done and all of those things. So, there is a certain sort of appropriateness, I guess. Uh, this is the 20-minute answer to your question. Uh, there is a certain uh, a certain sort of uh, appropriateness, I think, to Missy getting, you know, the confession dial. So mm-hmm. I-, I was fine with it. Um, I think it makes sense. I think mm-hmm. uh, I think it's too easy to think that it should be Clara, but. Is Clara even currently the most, uh, you know, the best friend of the doctor? Mm-hmm. Like, like, so even, even now she seems to travel with the doctor less than other companions have, mm-hmm. less regularly, I mean, because like, you know, she's still teaching and holding down a steady job. Right. Amy right. and Rory, well, at least Amy at first and then Rory For a while, eventually. Yeah. Like, it was like they were in the TARDIS and they went everywhere together. And they, you know, were doing, um, same basically with Rose. Like, yeah. it seems like she jumped in the TARDIS and was gone for, you know, several adventures. And, oh, and you know, okay, then we get like the whole you were missing for a year kind of thing. But, right, uh, right. you know, um, Martha... I think also is that largely, although, you know, we get some different things because there's like time gets turned back and, you know. Yeah, but all of them pretty much live from the time they get in. They they live there. They might come home to visit or because they have to, but they're basically full time as opposed to Clara still maintains the. The part-time, you know, it, yeah, it's my, like my a, stuff is in my apartment. It's, it's not, she's not a live-in companion. It's I more guess. like a standing weekly appointment kind of thing right, with right. her. So from that perspective, and that's not to say that like, she's not the doctor's friend or, you know, whatever, but would you call that best friends? Like, would you call that better friends than someone who's, you know, yeah, like been living in the TARDIS with you for who knows years potentially. Um, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Like I, you know, yeah. 
Clara thinks that she has earned that right, I guess, um, you know, to, to call the doctor her best friend and vice versa. But I don't know why we as viewers and people who are sort of aware of those other relationships should think that. Right. I mean, I people can get very, I think, a bit too invested in arguing over who is the most in quotes, important companion. Sure, um, sure. And, and, I, and I wasn't I think necessarily a lot of, meaning yeah, to say no, that either. But. I think a lot of energy is misspent in trying to quantitate things like that. I mean, I tend to see it as whoever he's with currently is sort of his best friend at the moment. That doesn't necessarily mean that that person is more important or more of a best friend than the last person. It just... it. I kind of see it as he, you know, he moves from person to person. And, and so maybe at the moment, Clara is the person closest to him. That doesn't, like you say, mean that she's the most, you know, the person who understands him the most in the world, you know, because there are other people who've been at least as close, if not closer. So, you know, um, but I do think that there is that sense the companion always thinks that they know the doctor in a way which is unique and are always sort of shown that that's not, you know, um, you know, you think of, you know, Rose, you know, I was a dad once, you know, and this is in Rose's like professing her love. I'm never going to leave you stage. She's still finding out that the doctor was a dad once, you know? Right. So, and, and how much that implied about what she didn't know. Right. Um, so yeah. And to go back to Missy too, you know, there is that kind of thing of, yes, she and the doctor do try to kill each other a lot. And, you know, that is a funny line about like, but you're always fighting. Exactly. Like, that's what friends do. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, um, in fact, that's a sign of very close friends and family is that you are you fight with each other. But, um, you know, like when I think of the end of season three with the two of them, what kind of really puts m- the master off is not, you know, he doesn't necessarily object to the doctor's company it's more the sense of well you're gonna keep me and and i'll have to stay in one place and not spread my chaotic evil and i'd rather die than live like that it's not that they mind each other necessarily because what does he do he keeps the doctor in a cage Mm -hmm. you know so he doesn't really try to kill the doctor or you know or or send him away or anything it's sort of like how the how Missy would prefer it is to just be in a constant state of mutual trying to kill each other. And like, can't we, that's our, that's the way we relate to each other. So, um, you know, again, to what extent you, you believe her that that's friendship, it's certainly um, a little bit more complicated than just, I don't think they just hate each other you know it's not that kind of animosity there's something kindred about it mm-hmm. um and there's something that you know missy wants the doctor alive so that they can continue trying to kill each other like it's way more fun if you know there are actually two of them so you know i think and from that point of view 
uh, it sort of makes sense. Um, you know, and, and I mean, I do think there's a smugness to her being the one to get the confession dial and to try to, you know, imply that humans are all about like their animal urges and time lords are sort of above all that stuff, you know, that, you know, that might just be her smugness talking in that moment. You know, like you said, there, there seems to be some sort of, you know, romantic or at least sexual component to their relationship. So, um, do with that what you will, but, um, I like her speech about, you know, try to rise above the height of your, or rise above the reproductive frenzy of your noisy little food chain and contemplate friendship. Like this notion that pure platonic friendship is this on this heavenly plane, as opposed to like, you know, carnal animal, you know, reproduction and everything. Right. Um, But when it comes down to it, I mean, all right. Yeah. They're not, like having sex, but they're, you know, going around like fighting and destroying things. Like, is that any less, you know, right. uh, whatever carnal or whatever you like, all right, not right. carnal technically, but is it less, you know, physical and, yeah. you know, emotional and all of that? Right. Right. That's animalistic in a different sort of way. Right. Yeah. Which is where I think that is the smugness of, Oh, I got this thing and you didn't, you know, and, and I got it because I'm so much above you and better than you. Like it, I wouldn't necessarily believe everything that Missy says in that moment. Right. Um, but, um, so yeah. So, and we get, okay. So we get uh, them figuring out like where the doctor is, you know, Oh, don't look for the crisis points because how's he going to meditate there? Right. Like look for the place where he's making the most noise. Um, And that is an entrance. Like it's, it's like all of these things are going on at once, Mm -hmm. which in a way they kind of are because, Mm -hmm. you know, they're happening throughout time and space. So you could theoretically go to any of them at any given point. Yeah. Um, but, you know, look for the place where he's, like, making the most ruckus where there isn't, like, right. a, a, you know, some kind of tragedy or whatever happening. Um, and <laughs> I love, so, and, uh, you know, Missy, you know, sort of takes them both uh, using yeah. uh, the Vortex Manipulator. Mm-hmm. Um you know the 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 cheap and nasty time travel uh <laughs> right you know this is right after like sort of talking about right how she's above like the sexual stuff and then making this very sort of like sexual innuendo about right. the time travel devices they're using um right which is of course the kind of time travel that like jack uses right you know? right exactly <laughs> right yeah um and how much like she clearly enjoys yeah uh you know doing that um and then uh you know the idea that they're sitting there and it's like okay so now we have to look for uh you know like subtle anachronisms to (laughs) whatever yeah in comes the doctor riding a tank you know uh playing an electric guitar and 
Yeah. Um, you know, just kind of, and, and there's some fun stuff there. I, you know, his, his punning, uh, I mean, it is funny in a certain sense, but it's also mm-hmm. kind of like, oh man, come on. You can yeah, tell the puns, he's like, the puns are very grown worthy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean the, the idea here being that like, I, I don't know what his meditation looks like but this is like he's clearly like trying not to think about what's coming up next and like Mm -hmm. maybe in that respect it's meditation meditative yeah um (coughs) so he and and we learned that like he thinks that he's been there a day but he's really been there like three weeks um (laughs) and that kind of thing uh you know but with with when he spots missy and clara or at least presumably clara mm-hmm. um you know and starts playing like the pretty woman you know right. theme and you know she comes down and um there's sort of like the sort of flattery moments there and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um but clara realizes pretty quickly despite all of the stuff we just said about you know how much is she really like his best friend or whatever Clara mm-hmm. seems to realize pretty quickly like that there's something wrong like that yeah like and kind of funny because you know in one sense she's like oh well the doctor's never acted like this before and Missy's like oh well you you are new aren't you right mm-hmm. like kind of again playing on that thing of like I know him better than you but then yeah. we get like the piece of like oh I don't have a sonic screwdriver anymore so Mm. missy's like oh well that's new so and and just this idea of like i you know i don't think we should sort of reversing or or backing away from everything that i said a minute ago like i i also don't want to get into the trap of saying like clara doesn't know anything about the doctor and that she can't detect when something's wrong and and that maybe maybe missy having the you know millennial view Mm -hmm. uh lets her miss things that clara is more likely to see by having you know a more focused in view of just how the doctor has been over the last you know year or whatever right well that's because that's sort of how i take clara's comment about like oh we're doing charm now and and the hugging um, that that being new for this doctor that like when, right. you know, so Missy's sort of like, oh, well, the doctor always does these things. And yes, maybe historically he has, but those are not typical of the 12th doctor, that those are things that he's, I'm against hugging, you know, he'll, or um, I'll hold Clara's hand, but that's it, not holding anybody. So like this kind of big um, bombastic punning doctor who hugs her and compliments her you know like after all of his insults last season about her appearance and all that to then go to we're gonna play pretty woman and say like he picked her out of the crowd like I think what Clara's picking up on is like the newness recently like for this particular incarnation um Mm -hmm. so in that sense maybe she knows him better than Missy does because like you said, Missy has more of the bird's eye view of all of his personalities. Um, 
but Clara is more intimate with 12, I guess. Um, and I think like with this being like his way of meditating, you get a sense of like, there's the desperation of it of, you know, I'm going to cut loose and be silly. And that kind of shows you how extreme this is that like, you know, under normal circumstances, he wouldn't do this. So the fact that he's gonna, you know, all of me is invited. Um, it's sort of his last sort of giving himself permission to throw himself a big party and, um, you know, not hold back on any of these kind of personality traits. So. Sure. Sure. So, um, all right. So it's interesting. So we've get, we get kind of another point. So if the, if the frame is almost like the, the th frame scenes mm -hmm. are pretty much from Davros's point of view. Yeah. Because like the doctor comes and goes and like the soldiers are there and then gone and whatever. Um, the prologue stuff, except for like maybe the actual prologue of Karn, but I mean like, like we get like, you know, Colony Sarf going to different places. So that's kind of his point of view. And then we get like, um Clara and then Clara and Missy's point of view together points of view together mm -hmm. um then we get like another switch here mm -hmm. because while we start off in sort of the medieval uh times you know portion you know from Missy and Clara's view it actually there's like a subtle but i think actual switch then to the doctor's point of view because you're getting you're getting him on the tank looking down at the dude uh you know that he's supposedly gonna fight and then you get yeah. him looking up like out to the crowd and seeing clara and stuff and you're like getting him you know talking to colony sarf when he comes and stuff so like there's this there's this switch in point of view and from there you know, they go to what turns out to be Scarrow. Um, mm -hmm. And there, a lot of what happens is from the doctor's point of view as well. Um, although we do get some, a little bit with like Clara and, uh, and Missy, there's actually, it's still in a way the doctor's point of view because we get him like watching them on monitors and stuff. Right. So there's like this aspect of like, even though, even though we might switch over to see them in like color or whatever, there is this aspect of like, he's watching them on monitors. So that's kind of what we're doing too. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. So. Okay. Colony Sarf comes, he gets the doctor, you know, they, he knows it's a trap. Uh, Clara and Missy like offer to go with them and Colony Sarf votes. Yes. Mm -hmm. proposal passes <laughs> and they all go um unanimous uh, right, right. agreement on everything uh so that's when we finally get the doctor meeting old davros mm -hmm. i mean not meeting like he knows who he is but like you yeah know, right fine, you know coming before him again um and so 
so what i mean you know part of my part of my hesitation here or my not my not being sure what to say um mm. is because like i don't i don't know what ultimately happens because i haven't seen the second part so like right right i don't know where this is all going but you get you get davros um saying things like i approve of your new face uh so much more like mine um which is interesting because you know, you can think of like the old aspect of it, right? Like it's it's mm -hmm. an old face, it's wrinkled and sort of yeah. has had its share of tragedies. Um, mm -hmm. But also like the sense that he's saying, like, I approve of the new face. It's like, you know, this is the face I remember. This is... Mm. <laughs> This is the this first is face. <laughs> this is the first face that you know my this face, face saw. Right, right. Uh, you know, and yeah, like like oh, this is my yeah. doctor. Like you said, yeah. like this is. There's a sense here where it's like okay, you and I have come into contact before, and again, mm -hmm. like I don't know, we don't know if Davros knew all those other times that it was the doctor right. who had. I mean, possibly because like he maybe saw the TARDIS and stuff, or maybe he figured out like with the switching back and forth between what the doctor, you know, he saw him sort of in one place and saw him behind him and, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Like, like maybe he figured that out, but yeah, we, we don't, don't know. know. We, we don't, don't know. know that that's for sure. So like, so like now, like now that he's got this new face, Davros sort of clearly has by now put it all together and, mm -hmm. and is, is approving and, maybe feeling a little justified and mm -hmm. uh, uh, a little smug or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and even like before, like we get the, we get the moment where like we, you know, Colony Sarf thinks he's drinking, uh, drinking, dreaming. Um, and he's like, no, no, I'm just anticipating. <laughs> like, like he's, he's clearly enjoying this moment. Right. Of, he's fantasizing about right. like, yeah, like, yeah. Like this meeting with this final meeting with the doctor, um, which is interesting too. So we get not just the doctor, like giving up his uh, uh, confession dial, you know, which is supposed to be done sort of the day before he dies. But you also get Davros, uh, like the explanation being that like this is the last meeting of you know Davros and the Doctor before Davros dies, right? Um, right. So there's sort of the parallel. Right, they're sort there. of linked in that way, yeah. Uh, and the question becomes is like, okay, is that because each of them thinks the other is going to kill them? So like, is it really both of their last days? Are they going to like cancel each other out somehow? Like, right? Like right. we don't. I mean. I don't know, but like there's, there's this yeah. idea. But the other thing that was interesting to me and that I hadn't, I don't know. I don't know if I saw, if I, if I thought about this before when we last saw Davos um, was how sort of impotent he is. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's the sort like he's in life support mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of the physical aspect of that, but also like his insistence that he has no control over the Daleks. He made them, right? And they've right. sort of let him live because of that, I guess. But he can't control them. He can't, you know, 
force them to do one thing or another um, or prevent them from doing one thing or another. I suppose prevention is also a kind of force. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, the the idea being that, like, he's he's just sort of existing here. Like, he doesn't, he's got Colony Sarf working for him, so there's that, I guess. But he doesn't really have any power. Yeah. As far as I can tell. Um, other than maybe the power of suggestion. like. Yeah. He can suggest things to the Daleks and, you know, clearly he's able to manipulate things in certain ways and, and kind of gets what he wants. But I don't know. I just I, I found that interesting that, like, we're not we're not dealing with sort of your typical I command armies, you know, mm -hmm. villain or, you know, even like, um, you know, just someone who themselves is like, will maybe go out and fight the doctor or whatever because like yeah that's not going to happen either so i right. i'm right. i'm i'm curious to see how that plays out because yeah um obviously we get you know now we have the daleks who have captured uh you know clara and um missy and the tardis and mm -hmm. uh we come to the end of the episode where uh Missy gets killed and then Clara gets killed or well Missy gets a beam of light shot at her and she disappears <laughs> uh, and that also happens to Clara and then like presumably the TARDIS gets destroyed uh, and so now we're uh, well again so another parallel is then now we have the doctor who's sort of impotent right because all of his friends and you know his primary getting around machine uh are all gone yeah. um but then again he defeated an axe-wielding medievaler with a daffodil apparently so or whatever <laughs> what was the flower was it daffodil uh um, it might have been i can't remember uh yeah, but um uh, you know so you know maybe he's not as powerless as all that but just anyway i, I guess my point is that like Like all of that stuff happens, but again, like Davros is still there. And so, you know, thinking about that, it's sort of an interesting circle because that's how the doctor found him originally, was helpless. He was mm -hmm. in this middle of this minefield, not able to move, not able, uh, you know, to even, you know, what, what the soldiers say, like, you can't move a muscle basically, or else these things will get you. Yeah. But yet we know he got out of that somehow. Yeah. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I Anyway. Yeah. No, I think like there's a parallel there of, of Davros and the doctor. I mean, obviously Davros is less physically powerful than the doctor, but both of them not being people who win battles with their physicality, but with like their words and their powers of suggestion and, you know, they, they have authority because they say they have authority and, and people listen to them and that's the source of their authority and everything. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a kind of similarity. Um, I feel like that aspect of Davros was sort of um, mentioned in Journey's End where I think as they're taunting each other, the 10th Doctor says some snide things about 
you know, you're the family member who gets stuck in the basement that you have this, these, you know, this grandiose dream of power, but really you're just here for show, you know, you don't actually have any authority and the Daleks could do whatever they want. Mm. Um, but I feel like it's way more emphasized here because of the way the actor plays him because he's like dying, you know, like the fact that he's not just sort of, you know, like handicapped and in the chair, but very old and frail and you can, he's sort of slumped over in the chair and, you know, you can kind of see that it, apparently he's sort of uh, on his sort of last, um, last legs would be the wrong metaphor. He's sort of, you know, in his last moments, I guess. Um, so I think that's definitely for part two, definitely an idea to keep an eye on. Um, yeah. And I like that idea of paralleling that with his helplessness as a child. Um, Cause you know, helpless people are generally the ones who excite the doctor's compassion. You know, those are the mm. people who he, it's not so much those people, you know, that sure. those aren't the guys you want to take down. They make it, that makes it harder for the doctor to, you know, defeat someone like that. Like it's, it's one thing to just abandon him there, but then to see the image of the doctor coming back with the gun at the end, it's like, mm -hmm. Oh man, way to like, you know, not just abandon the kid, but, you know, potentially shoot him as well. Like really kick him when right. he's down. Um, right. you know, that makes it even more extreme. So yeah. that's, that's quite a kick. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and also like just to sort of point out the very, uh, sort of, uh, just the look of the gun that he has is very, dalek -y. very yeah and he says exterminate you know, right and so, he says exterminate yeah. right yeah. yeah yeah like i just yeah it's like, literally like a dalek like it's the whisk gun thing that right, they have right. i think yeah well and um, it's it's just such a brief moment like i had to actually go back and look you know to like see that and yeah like i don't know if it's i i guess i didn't think of it as actually being like pulled off of a Dalek, but you could almost see it like that. Like it, it has right. that, like, yeah, that same look to it. Um, yeah. And yeah. And of course the chanting or the not chanting, but the uh, saying of the word exterminate uh, mm -hmm. is, uh, I almost said auspicious. That's not the right word. <laughs> <It> is, uh, <laughs> conspicuous. Uh, conspicuous. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Anywho. I I mean, I like this. I like the possibilities it sets up. I like the different parallelings and, and I like the sort of framing of the story. So I'm interested mm -hmm. to see where it goes. I, I did mention um, to you before we started that like, they, you know, they kind of like uh, went all out in the first episode. So I'm, I'm yeah. curious to see where they go from here because, where do you, go from here? you know, you killed the companion, you killed the, uh, you know, the other Time Lord and you yeah. destroyed the TARDIS. Like right. what more is there to do <laughs> right. at this point? Right. And, and you gave, you know, uh, you put the signature 
word of the Daleks in the doctor's mouth, you know, right. at the end. So I, I don't know where this goes. <laughs> It'll yeah. be interesting. Yeah. To How see. can you possibly top it? And, and what, yeah. What does the season like look like after this? So, um, yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Well, we'll, we'll talk about it next week then. Yep, we will. And, um, another episode of Angel too. All right. See you then. Mm-hmm.